This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning comic book store, Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. And listeners like you, head to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check us out at Patreon backslash TwoHeadedNerd. Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the Ziggurat in Omaha in caverns deep below the metro area, it is our pleasure to welcome you to episode 703 of the Two-Headed Nerd comic book podcast. I'm your head number one. My name is Matt Baum. I am your head number two, the internet's Joe Patrick, and it's time for another Cosmic Longbox episode where we dissect eight classic comic books based on a theme. And this week, we've uncovered some wild stories about the Guardians of the Galaxy. Maybe you've heard of them. (laughs) After that, we'll set you up with our must-read picks for next week's new comics, but now... The Cosmic Longbox has opened a universal neural teleportation network portal and programmed our experimental rocket with coordinates. All systems go for launch. We have a rocket? Of course we do. Macho built it and christened it the Fair we Enough. We do file countdown. Oh, that's nice. It's got a nice ring to it. For God's sake, Joe, strap yourself down quick because One, two, it's three, back issue review time. Four, three, two, one. Initiate boosters. are back in theaters with their third installment and the Cosmic Long Box and I finished our viewing last Friday. Then we finished crying and holding each other and then we decided it was time to dive into the history of these characters and explore their weird cosmic roots. Matt, I'm going to go first because I'm talking about the very first appearance of the Guardians uh, but not those guardians. Yeah, and I haven't seen the new movie yet, so it's probably better you go first. So yeah, I'm gonna, yeah, yeah. I'm know, going tomorrow. I'm going no tomorrow. Spo- no spoilers. We're not. Uh, yeah, we we're not monsters. I am talking about Marvel superheroes number eighteen. It is look. I do this every time we have themes like this. All of these comics are from Marvel. I don't want to have to say it every time. I'm going to say it every time. Okay. <laughs> It's from 1968. It's written by Arnold Drake with pencils by Gene Colan, inks by Mickey DeMeo, <laughs> inking legend. Yeah, Mickey good DeMeo. old Mickey DeMeo. <laughs> oh, uh, colors by Stan Goldberg, letters by Herb Cooper, with a cover by Gene Colan. An all-star um, cast, if you will. I an mean, all-star G- cast, yeah. Um, now, Gene Colan, I mean, he's a big name. Thank you to... I believe uh, it was the Marvel fandom site, uh, marvel.fandom.com. They had all of the credits, including the colorist and the letterer. And a lot of times these Silver Age books, they don't even bother to mention. Those were just Uh, little people, Joe. There was no reason to talk about them. Yeah, I mean, but it's just, it's nice to be able to, it's nice to know who to blame. Uh, Here is your synopsis, courtesy of uh, the aforementioned marvel.fandom.com. I see what you did there. That was good. Thank you. Uh, Charlie 27 returns from a six month mission to discover that his home planet of Jupiter has been completely enslaved by the evil Badoon. Let's not worry too much about the fact that Jupiter is actually a big ball of gas. Sure. 
He knows that we wouldn't stand a chance against them on his own, so he teleports to other worlds to find help. First, he joins forces with Martin X on the planet Pluto. Then, together, they travel to planet Earth, where Vance Astro and the Centaurian Yondu have just escaped from Badoon forces themselves. Not that Yondu. <laughs> when Vance and Yondu encounter Charlie 27 and Martin X, they briefly mistake them for more Badoon guards and a misunderstanding fight. A misunderstanding fight ensues. That's a weird way to phrase that. However, soon enough, they realize that they are all fighting for the same side and a new super team is born. The Guardians of the Galaxy. Where did this solicit come from? Marvel.fandom.com. Okay. A misunderstanding fight. (laughs) A misunderstanding fight. Weird turn of of phrase. Um, But yeah, otherwise, you know, spot on. Dead Man and Doom Patrol co-creator Arnold Drake completes his weirdo trifecta by bringing the Guardians of the Galaxy to life. Drake's vision of Marvel's future, one of them anyway, is about as far from the near utopia of the Legion of Superheroes as you can get. Earth and its colonies throughout the solar system have been conquered by the reptilian Badoon, who are rounding up citizens and sending them to work camps. But the galaxy's most oddly shaped astronaut, Charlie 27, ain't having none of that. <laughs> He's a and pile driver of a man, ain't he? <laughs> boy, um, he looks like Ram Man if you took off all of Ram Man's armor, but his body was still shaped like yeah, that. Yeah, he looks like Ram Man if Ram Man gained some weight, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and thus our adventure begins. Drake's script is full of painful future slang yeah and uh you just know that technology is advanced because everything has a word like space added to it right time for space math space one plus space one equals yeah space right two. yeah like i was just in space solitary <laughs> right no uh to be fair a lot of the sci-fi terms we take for granted today didn't exist in the late 60s on the other hand was it really necessary for our descendants to rebrand the incinerator and call it the incendi drop? <laughs> I would argue no. The art by Gene Colan and Mickey DeMeo is it's rough, man. I'm not sure if it's the inking or if Colan was just phoning it in, but the story is full of bizarre compositions, oddly contorted figures, and some truly just awful character designs. Holy shit. Yeah. These guys do not look good. There are some moments where Colin's usual brilliance comes through, but they're very few and far between. This was an anthology series, so the rest of the issue is packed full of Golden Age reprints. Interesting to look at, but totally skippable. We normally have fun reviewing Silver Age books, even the goofier stuff, but Marvel Super Heroes 18 is really tough to recommend. It is neat to see where the Guardians began, but beyond that, it's not great. Because of the significance and because, you know, it's, it, like I said, it is fun to see where they got their start. I'm giving this a skim it. If it wasn't like a big, important first appearance, I would probably give this issue a leave it. Okay. It's not good. I'm going to give it a legit skim it. And I agree the art is weird, but I really liked the art. Like, I thought there was some... Oh, s- you are kidding Not me. in the sense it's like, man, this is kick-ass, like, super technical, well done... It's just so trippy and bizarre. <laughs> like, it really is, dude. It's, it's, it is. It is. It's trippy it is as bonkers. hell. Yeah, it's totally wild. And I kind of liked it. It's. I feel like, 
And I don't know. Maybe I'm giving him too much credit. Maybe he was just rushed. But I feel like Colin was doing some experimental stuff here, like trying to make this look like a very futuristic book. And I mean, there's plenty of panels that you could just like pull off and put on a T-shirt and it would look kick ass because it's so weird. So I, I guess where I'm coming, what I'm where I'm coming from is not so much his depiction of the world, right? I don't even it's, mean that. Yeah, I don't even mean that. It's literally the way he, like... The style why, is wild. The, it's like the, the anatomy on this character as he's walking down his, the, the space escalator... Right. ...is, like, very wrong. No, there's, like, a scene of Charlie that's, like... And I can't tell if he's kicking someone or if he's jumping. Yeah, he's kicking somebody. But his leg is in such an odd position. But, like... I can't deny that it's cool looking. Like it's, it's not, it's, it's not, it's dynamic. It's I'll dynamic. It it's dynamic and trippy as hell. So I'm going to give it a skim it. The read is bad. <laughs> the read is just bad. It's not a good, no, I mean, the it, story it's, is bad. It's a pretty, it's a pretty kind of standard boilerplate kind of future revolutionary type thing. Yeah. But it's, there's nothing special here. I mean, outside the incendiary of, drop. I mean, yeah. I, Outside of Gene Colan's wild art, there isn't a lot to save this. Skim it. That's all I can say. Let's move to a Guardian of the Galaxy you may have heard of. Iron Man in Iron Man number 55. <laughs> this was Marvel from 1972. It's written by Jim Starlin and Mike Friedrich with art by Jim Starlin, inks by Mike Esposito, and letters by John Costanza. Here is your solicit. I wrote this, by the way. Enter Drax the Destroyer, sent by forces we can't possibly understand, to stop Thanos. But after their first battle, he finds himself as Thanos' prisoner, reaching out telepathically to the only one that can save him, Tony Stark. (laughs) But Iron Man has his hands full with Thanos' brutal duo, the Blood Brothers. I hate those assholes. (laughs) Tell me about it. Not only is this the first appearance of Drax, but... He shows up on page one with a full page splash, and he is screaming. He spends the entire issue screaming. It seems Starlin. It seems Starlin brought his cast of space maniacs to every comic he worked on. So naturally, he had to introduce Drax the Destroyer in the pages of his Iron Man during his two issue run. He only gets to write one of those issues, by the way. This is not the Drax that I know at all. His origin here is basically a guy named Mentor who was mad at Thanos, asked a space god named Kronos to create someone to kill Thanos, so he shoots an eye beam at a planet, and Drax crawls out of the dirt. Boom. Drax the Destroyer. What is not mentioned is the guy that crawls out of the dirt is former human jazz saxophonist arthur douglas <laughs> yeah that's not touched on here at all at all <laughs> from there starlin does what he does best and that is overwrite the hell out of everyone's dialogue as they speak their entire origin story thanos's origin gets retold here too and i want you to count how many times we revisit thanos's origin in the comics we reviewed today while drax telepaths that is the word that starlin chose to use to tony stark you know telepath the art of telepathing telepathing yeah telepathing (laughs) to to telepath of course he asked stark for help because he's been captured the first time thanos and drax fought you see their clash was so violent that a planet exploded so 
I'm not really sure why Drax is reaching out to human Tony Stark, who just got his ass kicked by... Well, they're, they're on Earth. I mean, I get that, but you're contacting Tony? Isn't there anyone more powerful? Tony literally just got I his mean, ass kicked by what is essentially a wrestling tag team. The Blood Brothers. <laughs> okay. I mean, maybe Tony was the closest dude. I don't know. No, I don't. He's like Tony Stark. I need you. <laughs> like he's he's oh, heavy into yeah, the idea. I don't, I, don't. I you know I read this and it, it, it it's all it's all a glorious blur. Yeah. Uh, it, it's like they had to. Starlin had to have an excuse for. It's like the reason why it's Tony. It's because it's Tony's book. It's, but you can't say that in the story. Okay, we're gonna get to that in a second here. Starlin's art is great, and this is early in his career, but I don't love the way he draws Iron Man. Everybody else looks fantastic, but there's something about his Iron Man where he makes it look like Iron Man is wearing clothes instead of armor. There's even a really weird scene of Starlin explaining how Iron Man gets dressed. I have an explanation for that. Okay. If you want it. Let's hear it. You want it now or you want it later? No, let's hear it. Okay, so in the Silver Age, Tony Stark's original armor was composed of what he called a steel mesh. Right. Uh, and so mesh is mesh, like right. chain mail. Right? Almost and like so, chain mail, yeah. It, so you've got the gauntlets, you've got you know the boots and the gauntlets and the shoulder pads and the helmet. And the rest of it is just basically chain mail. And the rest of it is just like is this kind of steel mesh that's soft, you know, that's floppy like fabric when it goes up his arm and then he pumps uh, a current through it or an energy of some kind. And it like hardens it eh. into, you know, iron into armor esque plating. I don't like it. And so, I mean, but it also kind of explains like how to get that shit into a brief. I suppose. Well, the answer, yeah. The I mean, answer is because most of it is collapses like a shirt. Right. But nobody by themselves goes, time to put on my armor. First, I'll throw on my shoulder pads. And then I just clamp <laughs> on my helmet. You're like, no, right. don't do that. Like, like he's got to sing himself like he's got to sing himself a little uh, a little putting on my armor song. So yeah. we remember to remember the, the proper order. Yeah. Like singing the alphabet. So, you know, where Q comes. Otherwise, you know? he's got to take it all back off. And that's a whole thing, right? It's like, ah, dang, I, I extended the sleeves before I put on the shoulder pads. Crap. <laughs> so Starlin's battle scenes are bombastic and they're huge, but he writes Tony kind of just like this brawler with a laser gun. It's weird. And I don't love it. This whole book almost reads like he was too concerned with forcing his creations, Thanos and Drax, into the story and making them the most important characters in the MCU through his own sheer force of nerdy will to even care about writing an Iron Man comic. Like, Iron Man's an afterthought in this whole book. Oh, that's Starlin's whole MO, dude. Right. The art here is great, but the story feels really forced almost like Starlin thought he had two issues, but found out Steve Gerber was writing 56 and he's just going to end up drawing Iron Man fighting Fangor. I'm giving this a skim it Fangor, not a name. You'll see again. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a He-Man villain. Uh, So yeah, that's, so that's kind of Jim Starlin's whole MO from the beginning of his career at Marvel. So it's like, I have a vision for the cosmic Marvel universe. And I am going to see that vision come to fruition 
by any means necessary. Yeah, hook or crook, whether you like and it, it or happens, not. Yes, and it happens time and time again in every book he touches. Oh, yeah. To the point that Marvel was just like, you know what, Jim? Here you go. He broke him. Warlock. He like literally, Warlock. Take it. Yeah, it's yours. Do it. Go crazy. broke the Marvel editorial staff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, that's how it feels, right? So it's, it's pretty crazy. It's pretty fun and wild to see him having such a clear idea for what he wanted to do and where he wanted the story to go from day one. Right. Yeah. It's, it's weird. And yeah, the Iron Man stuff is basically just there because they needed a book to put it in more or less. Yeah. The art is fantastic. Uh, Jim Starlin makes up at least two different words. Oh, uh, there's for sure. Tele- there's telepathing. And then you mentioned this in your notes, jailment, <laughs> which I just looked up. And it is definitely not a word, word. not a word. And you can't have these like Shakespearean characters with this amazing dialogue. Just yell out a word like jailment. Like, okay, let's, why? Maybe we look that one up. Jim, come on, Jim. Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, but this is a Drax that I recognize because this is the Drax from all of his appearances prior to annihilation. Sure. And he was this cosmic Hulk looking dude in a purple cape. And for a long time, he acted like a child because his mind got messed up here. He's smart. He's got the mind of the destroyer, but uh, in later appearances, especially in things like the infinity gauntlet, he talks like like the dumb Hulk. And it's, it's just weird. Yeah. I never really read any of that stuff here. He's just basically like an angry professional wrestler. Like, I don't even know why he's mad. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like, he's like, like, he was just friends with that guy like, last let week. Me tell you, what happened? Let me tell you, <laughs> let me tell you, let me tell you, me and Gene, yeah. the blood brothers ain't getting away with this. It's a skimmit, but this is notable because not only is it the first appearance of Drax, not only is it the first appearance of Thanos, it's also the first appearance of mentor. Who I didn't realize this of. was the first Thanos too. Yes. Oh my first God. Thanos. I didn't know that. First, first appearance of mentor, the leader of the Eternals of Titan. I mean, I give first, a shit about that, but first Thanos. Well, no, <laughs> but also first appearance of Star Fox. Oh yeah, like, like Star, in the Star Fox is in here too. Okay, all right. Uh, they don't they don't call him Star Fox. They just call him Eros. But right. yeah, it's that's Star Fox, and it's also like all of the all of the Titan uh, the Titan characters look like Thanos. Like they're all purple. Yeah, which is something they would change. But yeah, it's just, it's really fun to kind of see this proto version of these characters, but it's not a good story. No, no. I didn't realize this was so many first appearances. Oh my God. Yeah, dude. It's, it's, it might even be first appearance of Blood Brothers for all I know, but who cares about that? (laughs) Only Jim Starlin and Keith Giffen. That's the only reason it's worth any money, obviously. (laughs) Right, right. Let's give Mr. Starlin a break. Don't worry, though. He'll be back. Like it or not. Lots more. <laughs> o- over and over again. My next review is Incredible Hulk 271. It's uh, from 1982. It's written by Bill Mantlo with art by Sal Buscema. Colors by Bob Sharon and letters by Jim Novak with a cover by Al Milgram. Credited online as Alan Milgram. Only his mama calls him that. Well, you know. Here's your synopsis, courtesy of MyComicShop.com. The Hulk celebrates his 20th anniversary with one of the most offbeat stories of all, 
following the events of last issue. Don't worry about it. Hulk hurdles through the void only to run into the marvelous Rocket Raccoon and his band of colorful friends. Can the Hulk aid Rocket and his crew against the Machiavellian Judson Jakes and his sinister scientist, the tortoise, Uncle Pico? Boy, I hope so. Yeah. Otherwise, this is the last we're going to see the Hulk and a mole's going to kill him. <laughs> and a mole. And a mole. Think about kill that him, right? for a minute, brave reader. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, somewhere in the black holes of Sirius Major, there lived a young boy named Rocket Raccoon. Now, that is how you title a story. Yeah, there you go. Unfortunately, the story that the title is attached to doesn't quite live up to its promise. Yeah, the title's the best part, no doubt. The title is kind of yeah, kind of the best part. Yeah, the rest Hulk, kind of a letdown. So it kind of is. Yeah, Hulk finds himself on Half World for reasons that aren't at all important. Like literally, do not think about it. But he agrees to help the unfortunately dressed Rocket Raccoon and his companion Wall Russ rescue their friends. Wall Russ, you might know him uh, these days as Teefs. Oh, oh if you uh, say so. Guard it. I mean, it's basically talking walrus friend. He's, oh, he was the walrus. I thought maybe he was in, the tortoise. In Guardians of the Galaxy. Okay, I didn't. Sorry, I didn't pick yeah, up. Yeah, the that. tortoise named <laughs> Wall Russ. Yeah. Come on. Rocket is wearing what is essentially a metal diaper held up by suspenders. A far cry from the iconic swashbuckling outfit that Mike Mignola would design a few years later. Half-World makes no damn sense at all. It was colonized by aliens centuries earlier, and yet it's full of distinctly Earth-like cultural references yeah, I, like circus clowns, the Keystone Cops, and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be funny. You know? yeah, I guess, like, sure. Half of the planet is being strip-mined in order to build a giant spaceship that's Shaped like a man? Okay. Rocket's otter girlfriend is the niece of his walrus friend? I'm not sure how that works, but whatever. Oh, and a mole dressed like the Pope is trying to conquer the quadrant. It is just like a word salad, random lunacy. Sal Bishema is one of the all-time great Hulk artists, but this issue has me convinced that he has never actually seen what otters and raccoons look like in real life. Lila looks like a cat. Not an otter, but hey, whatever. I like to think that Sal Bushima was so mad at the script that he just kind of farted <laughs> you, it out. It was like, you want me to draw what? Like, this is the story. <laughs> All right. Give me 15 yeah. minutes. I'll be right back. Like, I, I, there I got you it. go. I got it. I'll be right back. Yeah. <laughs> now, this is Rocket's first appearance in comic book form, but his first actual appearance in Marvel preview number seven, the magazine is it's equally bizarre. It's even maybe even more bizarre because they tie it to some weird, like star slayer esque cosmic Conan. I would argue rip off o- only slightly more bizarre, only slightly more bizarre. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The best thing that ever happened to rocket raccoon is Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning get a hold, getting a hold of him during the annihilation years because oh, yeah. the version, the version featured in, in incredible Hulk 271 is a far cry from the character we love today. I'm giving this a skimmit again because of the historical perspective. I think that it's worth looking at if you're a fan of the character. No, I like just I 100 percent disagree. There is nothing historical or important about this. If you want to say it's the first appearance and it's worth money because of that. Fine. Collect it for that. This comic is terrible, Joe. 
It's poorly written. No, it's, it is terrible. It's yeah. poorly drawn by a master yeah. that is so much better than this. And literally the next issue looks better than this. I mean, pardon me. Yeah. The previous, the next issue is still part of this dumb story. I, what I meant to say was literally the previous issue looks better than this. This is a, this is throwaway garbage. I don't know what it was. I don't know if they're trying to be clever or funny, but it fails on all accounts and put any character you want in this. Maybe it's Wolverine. Maybe it's Captain America. Maybe it's Rom space Knight. Doesn't matter. This did not need to be a Hulk comic. This is a leave it. It is garbage, Joe. This is so bad. It's bad. I, I suppose if you, I suppose if you are after some historical context for rocket, you'd be better served reading rocket raccoon. Number one. Yes. 100%. That, um, which is no less bizarre, but it's about a thousand percent more beautifully drawn because Mike Mignola. Absolutely. But the only thing, the only credit I can give this comic book is it happens to be the first appearance of Rocket Raccoon. That's it. This is garbage. Leave it. And now back to more Jim Starlin action in Warlock number 10 from Marvel 1975, written and drawn by Jim Starlin with inks by Mike Lealoha and letters by Tom Orzachowski. Here is your solicit. I believe I wrote this too. Warlock, Pip, and Gamora face an onslaught of 25,000 Black Knights. Not that Black Knight. Can the cosmic comrades combat these catastrophic odds? Plus, Captain Marvel stops to introduce Thanos, and the origin of Gamora is revealed. This comic book was absolutely exhausting, but in the best (laughs) way. Like, I was sweating after I read this. Jim Starlin opens the book like a boxing announcer, and I just want to read this intro for you real quick, because... It is, it's so not Jim Starlin, <laughs> but it's like he's trying to get people fired up. This is page one. How strange my destiny. Part one, chapter one, the price. And it opens with these narration boxes. Welcome to the who's who of outer space department. Or how can you tell the monsters from the heroes without a program? Entering stage center, the first of 25,000 religious fanatics called the Black Knights of the Church of Universal Truth. These zealots have been ordered by the Magus, the god they worship, to kill everyone they find in this compartment. Okay. That's just the first of two narration boxes on this page. There are six more. <laughs> and it just gets crazier and crazier. <laughs> From here, Thanos, Warlock, and a basically nude Pip the Troll and Gamora kill 25,000 of the Magus's Black Knights. By the way, the Magus's Warlock in his evil future self. And you can tell that it's his evil future self because he has an Afro. Also, he's purple. I'll give you that too. He's lavender. Yes. Maybe lilac even. I can only (laughs) describe Starlin's writing here as dense. There is so much going on in just this issue. Warlock even gets a full text page to explain how he ended up fighting with Thanos, which I think may reset the first 10 issues of this story if you're just joining us. 
Captain Marvel then stops by to give readers a brief history of Thanos, and then Thanos gives readers a brief history of Gamora, who is actually from the future, and then Thanos talks Warlock into killing himself. <laughs> yeah, that thing with the with uh, Gamora being from the future was news to me, and I I've been reading about that character that. for 30 years he, I've been reading about yeah, Gamora. I had no clue. <laughs> The only thing more dense than Starlin's writing is his art. Every panel is exploding with color and detail in this cosmic lunacy. There's bodies everywhere. Space castles, giant space arcs, time machines, and so many different types of crackling energy and power blasts. Jim Starlin must have been the hardest working creator in the business back in the 70s. This is a 10th issue, people. This is not an annual. This is not an event book. Just issue 10. And Jim Starlet turns it into a symphonic death metal space opera that felt like it was 96 pages long. I don't know if I ever wanted to know this much about Adam Warlock, but here I am. I'm giving it a buy it for Starlin's effort alone. I cannot believe how much he packed into this one issue. Stunning. <laughs> Absolutely it, stunning. It really is impressive. And I felt like it had about 78 pages. And seriously, this, this is like when really it was just the normal comic it's size. Like 26 pages. And it took me 45 minutes to yeah. read. <laughs> it's got, it's got so many words and the art is so packed in. Like it's, it's like tiny panels, like just packed, packed, packed full of stuff. And it's all, it's all great, man. It's so dumb and weird. And needlessly complicated, oh, which yeah. is something that's going to come up again later. Definitely. It, it, but again, that's Jim Starlin's whole deal. It's, yeah. He couldn't. He did not meet a character that he couldn't make so unnecessarily confusing. Why is Gamora from the future? It doesn't make sense. Right. Why? Don't you don't even need it. The time machine that Thanos is talking about using, it's like doesn't even make sense. It doesn't make sense. So this warlock, the Magus, is from the future, causing all these problems. Warlock from now is gonna later turn into him. Thanos has a time machine, Joe. Go back in time and kill baby warlock. And we're well, but, done and, and, here. But, you know, I, but I, but I, I think that they actually, oh, maybe it's, maybe it's the next issue. Part of Warlock's history is that he did something to erase the timeline where he becomes the Magus. Well, and in this issue, that, they say, Thanos is like, all you gotta do is kill yourself and none of this happens. I, that maybe that's, maybe that's the end of this. So uh, I assume he slits his wrists in the next. Yeah. Well, no, he gets crucified because warlock is space. Jesus. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yes. Uh, uh, which is another theme that Starlin loves. Yeah. I hope he crucifies himself. Tori Amos style, you know, <laughs> just straight up. <laughs> sure. But this is so crazy in the most fun way. And again, you don't need all of this weird content. You don't want to, to enjoy Adam Warlock or yeah. Gamora or anybody from the Guardians uh, movie. But God bless Jim Starlin for being out there, you know, making it work, ma building his own little corner of the of the Marvel Universe. This is a buy it for me because it's just 
so fun. It's just like block out an hour at a time to yeah. read it and then another hour to take a short nap to recuperate. Yeah, you can't argue that the guy gave everything he had to every issue he ever worked on. It's amazing yeah. how much energy this yeah. dude had. Now, you want to talk about a writer that knows how to tell a straightforward space opera? Let's talk about Roger Stern, writer of The Avengers, number 260 from 1985. As I said, written by Roger Stern. Pencils by John Buscema. Inks by Tom Palmer. Colors by Christy Scheel. Letters by Jim Novak. And a cover by John Byrne. Roger Stern, the guy that doesn't have to make up words to sell comics. All right? No, (laughs) he, he already knows all of the real words. Here is your synopsis, courtesy once again of MyComicShop.com. With Nebula threatening the entire universe, Captain America, the Wasp, and General Zedrow plan the assault on Thanos' former starship. Earth's mightiest heroes have not visited Sanctuary 2 since the classic Avengers Annual 7, but now, alongside the Sinister Scrolls, the six Avengers attack. Nebula has the awesome weaponry of Sanctuary 2 at her disposal, but the Skrull Armada, Hercules, Captain Marvel, and Fire Lord are charging hard. Who will win the Savage Outer Space Shootout? And could unexpected help be coming somewhere from beyond? Matt, I bet Matt can't wait to talk about that. Grown. Now, this is actually several chapters in to a multi-part saga that began as a subplot that had Captain Marvel, Monica Rambeau, trying to infiltrate Nebula's band of galactic conquerors that started back in Avengers uh, 257, which was uh, Nebula's first appearance. But things really come to a head in this issue as we learn that the reason why Nebula was able to seize control of Thanos's powerful warship is that she is none other than the mad Titan's granddaughter whoa whoa <laughs> like, i thought she was a daughter <laughs> well this is grandpa now <laughs> or so she claims at least right. the mcu the mcu will kind of simplify that and make her a daughter and so that she and gomorrah are sisters yeah. essentially nebula has her sights set on the scroll empire having already laid waste to xandar homeworld of fire lord and the nova Corps. Fire Lord's disgust for the team-up between the Avengers and the Skrulls takes a backseat to his rage, and the former Herald of Galactus strikes out for vengeance. Uh, you know, kind of racist, Fire Lord. Well, I mean, I get it. The Skrulls have done the bad Skrulls. things. At on. this point, the Skrulls were super dicks. <laughs> they are pretty, they are pretty <laughs> evil in yeah. general. It looks like Nebula and her crew are about to escape justice, but have no fear. The Beyonder shows up uh, and just uh, teleports the whole lot of them to a different galaxy. Yep, you guessed it. This issue is a Secret Wars 2 tie-in. <laughs> and much like the Inferno issue we reviewed a couple episodes ago, this event feels completely tacked on to the story the creative team was already trying to tell. Did they use the crossover as a way to wrap up a story they weren't sure how to end? It kind of seems like it, but we'll never know. Otherwise, this is a really fun time from one of my favorite Avengers eras. I love the Roger Stern, John Buscema, Tom Palmer era. The art by Buscema and Palmer is fantastic. 
full of cosmic spectacle and wonderfully hilarious sights like the Black Knight flying through space on his atomic steed and attacking spaceships with a sword. Yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah, I mean, it's the Ebony Blade. It ain't no slouch. Well, don't forget Herc wrestling a spaceship. In with, his underpants, now, essentially, yeah, right? With yeah. a helmet on so he can breathe. But he's still basically nude in outer space other than that. So. Yeah, and they mention it. They, they're like, Hercules, don't you want a space suit? And Herc, so Herc's like, nah, man. I'm yeah. the lion of Olympus. The yeah. cold doesn't bother me. Body's super tough, but, uh, you know, lion's got to breathe. He's only a demigod, Matt. He's not an actual full-blown god. That is fair. That is fair. The Avengers' adventure with the Skrulls concludes in Avengers Annual 14, but Nebula wouldn't be seen again until issue 314, four years later. Nebula is a completely different character now than when she debuted in 1985, but the conclusion of her first storyline in Avengers 260 is an epic, though abrupt, ending to a really great star-spanning saga Starring Earth's Mightiest Heroes. I mean, I'm giving this a buy it. I ended up reading the entire storyline, starting with 257. It's really great. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> the stuff with the Beyonder is weird, and yeah. like, literally, the, the plot with Nebula just stops dead in its track. For the same reasons you said that, like, they obviously used Secret Wars to, to sum up and end a story that was already pretty complex. I'm giving this a skim it because just I know you have an affinity for this Avengers lineup in this time. I do not. And just jumping into it, I I understood what was happening. And maybe that was a little bit to the book's fault because I understood what was happening just enough to know, oh, shit. Now the Beyonder shows up. This is obviously during Secret Wars 2. Barf. I can't believe they ended it like this. <laughs> this is so abrupt and dumb. Now, with that said... There's a lot of laugh out loud, fun moments with the space stuff. So I, I'm going to stick with the skim. It the art is great. I totally admit. I totally agree. The art is great, and I love Fire Compare- Lord, man. Fire Lord is I so pissed I off. <laughs> and and this is um so Fire Lord Fire Lord shows up a few issues earlier be, uh, because the Avengers get called to New York City. Uh, because they get a report that Spider-Man is fighting Fire Lord in in Manhattan. So this is direct. It, it's directly tied to those two issues of Amazing Spider-Man, where Fire Lord comes to Earth to get a pizza. We were still and, uh, and Spider-Man basically beats him into unconsciousness. We were still learning how crossovers work. This was early, uh, yeah, you know. But I mean, it's it's fun. And so yeah, it's like oh hey, a little bit of synergy here. This is right. This is right after Spider-Man yeah. like nearly gets his. Nearly gets obliterated by a Herald of Galactus. Okay, look, this is a skimmit, and I think I'm being nice here. Okay, that's all I'm saying. Oh, come on now. It's not that bad. Uh, like, the abrupt ending aside, the rest of it is great. The rest of so, it is great. And then it's like, whatever. this is what we're doing. Oh, this is where we were going. Come on. <laughs> I mean, really, the scroll plot is the is the A plot. Yes. And that does carry on into the annual. But, yeah, it is weird. It's a, it's a, weird, it's a weird ending it for this It switches storyline. gears. Very suddenly, I'll say that. Very, very suddenly. Yep, it's true. It's you're absolutely right. Oh yes. Let's borrow Thanos's time machine and jump back five years for Marvel Spotlight Volume Two, Number Six from Marvel. It's 1980, written by Doug Mensch, with art by Tom Summit, letters by John Costanza. This is the second time we've seen him, and colors by Ben Sean, who we can't trust because he has two first names. Here is your solicit. Witness the origin of Star-Lord, Peter Quill. Peter was a normal kid growing up in the 70s, but he never quite fit in. 
Little did he know his father, Jason of Sparta, was an alien who crashed on Earth and was nursed back to health by his mother, who's later killed by the alien enemies of Jason who come to Earth looking for dad. After he left Pete's then pregnant mom, by the way, to rejoin the war. Later, Peter grows up to be an astronaut and finds his destiny when he is chosen by the Sun King to be Star-Lord, a one-man force for good with his element gun and trusty shape-changing ship named Ship, who is a female shapeshifter that admits she forgot her original shape for reasons I don't quite understand, but we'll get there. But is the Sun King who he seems... Or is he hiding a sinister secret? Spoilers, he is. Before you collector well, wonks, I mean, I don't know if it's sinister, but <laughs> I guess. Before you collector wonks, come at me. Yes, the true first appearance of Peter Quill was in Marvel Preview number four, but that was a black and white Marvel magazine. This is the first comic appearance of Pete, and the story is very similar to the one in the pages of Marvel Preview, minus Mom getting knocked up while cheating on her husband with an alien, Jason of Sparta, and Mom's husband, Jake, trying to kill baby Pete with an axe because he looks like Jason. This was the 70s. This is how parents sorted stuff out like this, okay? It was a different time. (laughs) Here, Doug Bench tells a much more comic code friendly story, minus the Jake character and the attempted infanticide. The rest is very similar, though. Peter becomes Star-Lord after Sun King appears to the crew of a NASA space station and tells the crew to pick someone, and I'll be back in two weeks to make them (laughs) Star-Lord. Pete doesn't get picked, but... He decides because aliens killed his mom, it's his turn to shine. So he shoves the chosen guy out of the way and gets the job. Flight powers and an element gun that can shoot rocks along with his talking female shape-changing ship. Let me ask you this. Why does he need a ship if he can fly in space? Why is the Sun's King disguised as Space Gandalf living in or near the sun, it's hard to tell, when he's actually a reptile alien of the same race that was fighting a war against Pete's dad. I think they never really get into the war other than it was happening. (laughs) Why an element gun? Why can't ship remember its original form? There's so many questions I have after reading this I mean, because she spent too much time shapeshifting. Oh, God. There is not a lot to love here. And it is pretty amazing that Pete went on to become the Star-Lord we know and love today. This story is bizarre. It is so overly complicated. It's a mishmash of lessons learned through violence, vengeance, and pacifism with an end that I guess was a twist. Summit's art is trying to be as complex and wild as the story, but it comes off as just overly drawn, and his characters have the most bizarre poses, and not in a trippy way. Not like we talked about earlier. This is more in a bad way. (laughs) James Gunn did Peter a massive favor by stripping the character's origin down to the core of what makes him great. Kid whose mom died, blames Space Dad, gets kidnapped by aliens, go. Why did this creative team think they had to make this this complex, obtuse, and weird? I am giving this a leave it. Joe, I f- hated this comic. <laughs> I hated it. Okay, all right. Um, 
Look, I don't think it's any more convoluted than anything else we read this week. I, but I disagree. The, all the motivations and stuff even didn't make any sense. Peter decides, oh, I'm going to become an astronaut and go to space, find my mom. He immediately gets into space and goes, what the f- was I thinking? It's the 70s. What am I going to do? And then, oh, you're in luck, Pete. Space Gandalf is here. <laughs> but he doesn't necessarily want you. He wants anybody. Oh, also, he's going to get lazy and decide, you know, I was going to make an army of Star-Lords, but uh, decided not to for reasons that I'm not going to reveal. <laughs> what? He's what lazy. Is, he's lazy. What is happening? <laughs> yeah. I think that my mind tried to rationalize all of the coincidental stuff by thinking that the sun King revealed that Peter was always his destined choice. Not in this comic, but that is actually not on display in this that comic. Now that not, I'm looking back at literally it, literally is like, you guys pick somebody. I'll be back in two weeks. It, making yeah. star Lord. <laughs> yeah. And it, it just, it just so happens that, that Peter fought his way into space and is and is now given the opportunity or rather is presented with a potential opportunity to get the power he needs and he isn't chosen. Right. OK, it's the 70s. What if Ted Bundy's up there, Joe? What if Ted Bundy decides I'm going to be the star lord and your son, King, who obviously doesn't give a shit, is like, sounds good, Ted Bundy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> So yeah, okay. I yes, the 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 coincidences are are bizarre and unexplained. But things like the element gun and and the shape changing ship, like I love that stuff. Yeah. I think it's so inventive. The gun that shoots uh, the four elements: earth, wind, water, fire. I think that's awesome. I and read- they actually incorporated that into the Guardians of the Galaxy video game. Yeah, which is very very good. I'd rather have a laser uh, gun any day of the week. That's just me. So. Whatever. You know, why does he need a ship when he can fly unprotected through the vacuum of space? Because, man, just because you can run doesn't mean you want to run everywhere. Sometimes you want a car. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> no, no, please. Nothing. It's the that's the exact he reason. He flies to a different planet. So it's not like speed is an issue. <laughs> Even Aquaman rides a seahorse sometimes, Matt. It happens. That hasn't happened for years, Joe. Come Whatever. on. <laughs> there is a there is a. A twist, but again, it's super coincidental, especially if Peter wasn't supposed to be the chosen one. Right. Um, (laughs) Like, that's the other thing. It's just like, like, this all just sort of happened. Yeah. Um, Now, I love the art. I I really do. And I can understand, like, I understand where you're coming from. But to me, this looks like, like, very... It's atypical. It is not your typical comic book art. It is much more like fantasy art and that's yes. kind of how i approach it and that's what i love about it it's not inexcusable um, there was things i liked about it definitely like some of it is is definitely cool but then there's other things where it's like you know young peter reading a comic book and one of his eyes is way bigger than the other one and like <laughs> you know like just weird little things like it's what's got wrong a lot with of his hair it, at all it, times his a, hair is crazy (laughs) yeah he's unkempt i had this randomly as a kid and i was super excited to revisit it i really loved revisiting it i can't deny that it's got a whole host of problems and yeah star lord's probably better off now that he's been uh, basically bendis and gun turned him into a god character i'm giving this a skim it because i have great affection for it but i totally understand all of the complaints that you have it's it's a strange comic 
Let's bring our magical mystery tour of Jim Starlin's career to a close with Warlock and the Infinity Watch number one. This is from 1992. It is written by Jim Starlin with pencils by Angel Medina, inks by Terry Austin, colors by Ian Laughlin, letters by Jack Morelli, and a cover by Medina and Austin. Here is your synopsis courtesy one more time of mycomicshop.com. In the aftermath of the events in Infinity Gauntlet number six, Adam Warlock is in possession of the most powerful weapons in all the universe, the legendary Infinity Gems. Together, they make him master of space, time, power, reality, the mind, and the soul. Now, Adam stands before the living tribunal and is accused by eternity, a cosmic deity, of being unworthy to possess omnipotence. Bearing witness to this trial are some of the most powerful beings in all of existence. I am not going to list them. Uh, that seems unnecessary. It would, it would take the rest of the show. They're all. Yeah. Here. Will Adam Warlock surrender ultimate power or will he engage in a battle that will surely destroy all creation? Yikes. The Marvel cosmic landscape was in a really weird place following the events of the Infinity Gauntlet crossover <laughs> in 1992. Thanos and Nebula were vanquished and Adam Warlock emerged with the power to control all of creation, which didn't sit too well with the universe's other cosmic deities. What else is an omnipotent genetically engineered quasi messianic guy to do, but agree to share the power with five of his pals. We don't get to meet the team in this issue, but Jim Starlin turns a bunch of abstract entities talking in a white void into a cosmic spectacle while also taking the time to recap Warlock's truly bananas history. <laughs> and it, it truly is a trip that could only be described as Starlin-esque because needlessly convoluted Shakespearean space epics are Jim's entire brand. Starlin delivers intense drama on an almost biblical scale as the forces that rule the Marvel Universe stare each other down with the fate of all existence at stake. And all of this is brought to life by the bizarrely amazing artwork of Angel Medina. Yeah. The cosmic beings loom larger than life, especially Top Dogs, Eternity, and the Living Tribunal. The Living Tribunal has never looked more like he was about to pile drive a guy. Yeah, totally. This this Living Tribunal like benches, bro. He, he is, is ripped. <laughs> ripped. Yeah, that dude is stacked. Medina does an excellent job conveying the massive scope of the action and even makes a bunch of weird-looking dudes standing around in an empty void look interesting. Warlock and the Infinity Watch has always felt kind of like this joke from the 90s, a weak follow-up to a huge event. But I had never read it before, to be fair, and I had a blast reading the first issue, so much so that I think I might keep reading for a little while. I'm giving this a buy it. I, le I legitimately loved it. Okay, Warlock and the Infinity Watch is legitimately a 90s joke. It absolutely is. It's a punchline. That doesn't mean... It's not great. It just right. means it's like, look, this is as Jim Starlin as Jim Starlin could possibly Jim Starlin. You know what I mean? Not right. just that, though. It's also as early 90s as Marvel could possibly early 90s. It, the art 
Everybody is ripped and flexing. I mean, oh yeah, it, Warlock is fighting Man Beast for some reason, like Encounter Earth. Oh, that's, and in, a flashback, that's part of his origin. You know, yeah, that's part like, of his origin story. Yeah. I, I, no, I get it, but it's just like this stuff. Like only Jim Starlin can make these stories as important as he wants them to be. You know what I mean? Like oh, they're right. not. There's no importance here. And if you try to explain it to anyone who's not a fan, their eyes are just going to glaze over and be like, you're insane or maybe making this up as you go. But Jim Starlin had a map for this shit. And I got to say, Angel Medina draws the hell out of it. It is. I love such, Angel Medina. I love him. I do too. This is such a great looking. like when we make fun of nineties art and nineties extreme style, it's definitely here. There's no question but it's done really well here. Like he's nailing well, right. it, you know, and, and reveling in it. It's everything just looks kick ass and everyone is built like the biggest pro wrestler you've ever seen. Yeah. You know? I mean, there's no, there's no pouches or weird guns, no, no, no. but, but every, every single character in this comic book, whether they have reason to be or not looks like a professional wrestler. Yeah, the watcher, Joe, the watcher is yeah. more cut than they I've are ever rippling seen it. with muscles. <laughs> right. Yeah. And but I mean it, but it looks <laughs> cool. Yeah. The this the spread, the very last page spread of Warlock flying through space, like with like the black and like the white zip tone around him. And like he looks so badass. The only drawback is if you want to know about this character, you have to read a whole lot of exhausting shit. I'm giving it a buy. Well, the, look, man, the origin is right here. It is. You really only need this issue. And again, does, does Starlin do what, Star, what Starlin does? Someone's not going to know. Someone's not going to know about Warlock. So I got to reset his entire, his entire origin every time I talk about him. <laughs> yeah. But I, well, I mean, Warlock hadn't had his own series in about 30 years. I agree. But t- I, 20 years up at that. Up at the I got to admit, I, I couldn't look away. You know, it's pure spectacle it's and it's great. It's a buy it from me. Angel Medina uh, would later have a pretty wonderful run on Incredible Hulk. Yeah. Peter David's Incredible Hulk. Oh, man, Hulk. that run is so good. And then um, he goes on to draw. Uh, he becomes a, an artist of Spawn. He becomes the artist of Spawn for That's a while. That's right. This is true. And, you know, like Greg Capullo, his style would evolve, but it's he's been great from the start. I yeah. love Angel Medina. Angel Medina was not one of the problem artists of the 90s. That guy kicked ass. Yep. We finish out with a Guardians of the Galaxy that you might find a little easier to recognize in the pages of Guardians of the Galaxy number one from Marvel 2008. This was written by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning with art by Paul Pelletier, inker Rick Magyar, colorist Nathan Verbaron, and letterer Joe Carmanja. Or Carmagna. I don't know. Aramania, what are you? <laughs> Here's your solicit. Back-to-back annihilation wars have weakened the boundaries of our universe. In the face of terror, who stands to defend the desperate universe? Star-Lord and his squad of butt-kickers, the modern-day Guardians of the Galaxy. Upon revisiting this comic, there is no doubt in my mind this was a series that James Gunn based his Guardians on. The tone is here. The fun is here. The snarky dialogue. And while all the characters aren't present, Philovel, for example, although I got to admit, I haven't seen Guardians of Galaxy 3, but I'd be willing to bet a million dollars <laughs> she does not show up. 
Back into okay. <laughs> back, you're gonna take that back. Am I wrong? Oh. Does Phyla I, Bell show? You know what? No spoilers. No spoilers. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, no spoilers. Back in 2008, Abnett and Lanning had laid a clear reason for this team to exist, and I would argue is better than what Gunn set up in the movies. Peltier's art is perfect for this cosmic action piece, complete with otherworldly squid monsters that Gunn directly lifted for the intro of Guardians of the Galaxy 2, and Fairbairn's colors lift all the spaceships, explosions, and monsters to the next level. It's a beautiful-looking book. This was such an exciting time for this team and for Marvel's cosmic stories coming out of the Annihilation event. Also an absolute must read. If you've never read this, it truly is the payoff for all the kind of dumb cosmic stuff that we have talked about in this episode so far. And I am so glad that a creative team like Abnett and Lanning got a hold of these characters and did what they did turning them into the guardians that we love today. Don't get me wrong. The history is important, of course, and it's fun to yeah. revisit. Yeah. And I know we make fun of it and laugh about it, but this is the guardians of the galaxy. When I think of them in my head, I own this entire run. I will never part with it. This is a massive buy it. Yes, I agree with all of the things that you said. And Abnett and Lanning also understood that the history is important because right. this series will touch on the original history with the future team. Oh, big time. And, and we'll see kind of how one leads to the other. And it's all here. Warlock is here. The Universal Church is here. You know, I mean. Yeah. Like so the Universal Church of Truth, which is a, a very uh, a long running kind of nemesis of Adam's uh, kind of cosmic zealots. They are essentially what James Gunn introduced in the movies as the sovereign. And right? they worship the sovereign. Warlock's future the so self, the Magus, right? In the comics, yes. Yeah, okay. Uh, so, yeah, the, 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 the sovereign are essentially like a stand-in for the Universal Church of Truth, which is, uh, let's make these cosmic villains very Earth-centric, and they fly around in a spaceship that actually looks like a Catholic church. Yeah, okay. Which is, is again, very weird. Everything about this is great. This is, these are the building blocks of the Guardians from the MCU. So this actually spun out of Annihilation Conquest, which right. I always forget. It came out of the second, uh, the sequel to Annihilation. So uh, the premise is basically the universe had two back-to-back -back cosmic wars, and it can't take a third. Yeah. Because bad things are happening to the fabric of the cosmos. And the and Peter Quill is like, we need to form a peacekeeping force to nip that shit in the bud before it happens. And thus the guardians are born. And what a great idea. Like you said, it's a much stronger motivation for the team to be together. Other than this group of misfits gets thrown into prison together. Right. And then they decide to stay. We're a family, which is cute. Don't get me right. wrong. I like it, you know, but here they have an actual purpose, right? Paul Pelletier is one of my all time favorite comic book artists. I love his work so, so, He's so much. So damn good. And it, uh, this is a phenomenal looking comic. That guy has still got it every time uh, I see him pop up somewhere. I am excited about it. This is a no-brainer. This is a buy-it. If you have any affinity for the MCU Guardians at all, and you want to see where the themes and the tone that you love in the movie came from, this is the place. 
This is the place. It's a huge buy it. Yeah. Before the Cosmic Long Box lets us make the jump home, we need to pick one of these comics to enter the THN Permanent Collection. Matt, isn't it amazing to see how far the Guardians of the Galaxy have come from their humble origins? <laughs> humble. It's bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre when you think about... The trajectory about, of this group is bonkers. Right, not just them, though, like Thanos, Adam Warlock, you know, like all these characters. These were not celebrated characters. These issues did not sell well for the most part. You know, they were all but forgotten. And if it wasn't for certain nerds like Abnett and Lanning, like Brian Michael Bendis, like James Gunn, this shit is gone. It vanishes. And we and we we laugh about it someday and make fun of it in a different cosmic long box, right? It, it blows my mind that every kid in the United States knows who Groot and Rocket Raccoon are. It blows my mind. That's uh, yeah, that is the weirdest thing to me. Like, right? Uh, that Groot is a household name, or is, that is... anybody that that someone would tell you. Even back in two thousand and eight, when we loved this series, Iron Man was not a movie yet. At this point, there was no MCU. In 2008, had someone told you, Joe Patrick, one day a major star is going to put on a Star-Lord outfit and go to cancer wards and make little kids feel better. You would be like, you're out of your damn mind. <laughs> like, this is a cult book at best, you know, that Marvel cosmic nerds like. Here we are. It is amazing. If I got to pick one of these books for the permanent collection, it, it has to be the 2008 Guardians of the Galaxy number one because it's the culmination of all of this stuff that we read, boiled down, chilled the f out, thankfully, <laughs> you know, and presented yeah. in a really fun, relatable way by creators that legit love this stuff and do pay attention to all the bonkers history that we, for the most part, just made fun of. Just for context, Iron Man 1 came out May 2nd, 2008. Okay. Uh, which I assume was a Thursday or a Friday. Guardians of the Galaxy number one was released on May 14th, 2008. So the same so week, basically. The, the, the MCU was less than two weeks old. God, it's crazy. Just crazy. And and certainly at that point of its creation, like I doubt Abnett and Landing were uh, had the inside scoop on Iron Man getting made. No you know? way. And certainly Guardians of the Galaxy, the movie, was hype dream if even not at all it wasn't even a reality there's no there's no question like they were just writing a monthly comic these were sci-fi guys that got hired to do a sci-fi yeah. job and they went all right great well and I, marvel and went we're not doing anything with them have fun annihilation sold really well yeah you get a series go yeah and now and now you know i remember in 2014 or, or 2013 whenever it was announced that marvel studios was going to make guardians of the galaxy all of comics fandom, us included, went, what? Yeah. like <laughs> They're doing what? <laughs> <laughs> You're going to do this and, before we get, like, a good Incredible Hulk movie? <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. Before, you know, Black Panther gets his own movie? Right. Before, like, and, and now, now we have no surprise, no doubt, and we don't even question it when they say, yeah, we're going to make a Shang-Chi movie. Or yeah. you know we're gonna we're gonna uh, we're gonna do Eternals, and 
Yeah, it's be- and it all started with these comics. Yeah, it's it's just nuts. Especially especially this last one. <laughs> yeah. So what's your pick? What will you put in the permanent collection? I mean, I think it should probably come as no surprise, and I imagine that you and I have the same pick. It's got to be Guardians number one. Yeah. Well, I already named, I already named mine. So. Oh, you did. Okay, sorry. Yeah, it, so I mean, it's got to be Guardians. <laughs> it, it, it's got to be Guardians one. It's the strongest issue of the bunch, just creatively speaking, for one thing. For sure. But also, the impact it had on on the MCU can't be can't really be measured. No. It's, and the love, that or they, it, it can, and the and the number, and it's in the billions of dollars. Yeah. So. And the love that they had for all of Jim Starlin's bonkers bullshit, you know, is just. It shows. It's great. And as much as we make fun of him, we don't have any of this stuff without Jim Starlings. Now that the Fair Enough has landed safely back in the cavern, there's no time to rest and reacquaint ourselves to Earth's gravitational embrace. Joe, we must away and make haste to teach in Sanctum Sanctorum to make our must-read picks for next week before we anger the ancient gods being held captive in the ziggurat. See what I just did? I made that so needlessly Starlin-esque complicated. What is your must-read pick? for next NCBD Wednesday, May 17th. Yeah, clearly um, you've been inspired. <laughs> Kudos. Kudos. My pick for next week is Titans number one from DC. It's $3.99. It's written by Tom Taylor with art by Nicola Scott. Here's your solicit. The dark crisis is over and the Justice League is no more. Now a team must rise and protect the Earth. Titans, go! I guess that's their theme. Uh, that's their rallying cry. Yeah. The Teen Titans are ready to grow up. Each member joined as a much younger hero, certain that one day they'd be invited to join the Justice League. But the time has come for them to not join. Uh, but the <laughs> time has come. To not join the Justice League yeah. like Matt wanted. <laughs> but the time has come for them not to join the Justice League, but to replace it. Are the no longer teen heroes ready for the big leagues? Danger lurks around every corner as heroes and villains alike challenge the new team before they've even begun. Will the DCU ever be the same? Find out in this landmark first issue brought to you by the all-star creative team of Tom Taylor. You know him, you love him from Nightwing and deceased and Nicola Scott, who has done amazing work on books like Wonder Woman, Historia Earth Two. She also drew uh, the Wonder Woman ongoing and she is fantastic. She is fantastic. I always thought it was pronounced DC eased, though. I didn't know that. It's it's DC eased, yeah. <laughs> DC eased. I love the Titans. I love Tom Taylor. I love Nicola Scott. This is a no-brainer for me. I know that Matt is big mad about them not being called the Justice League, but there's obviously a reason why they're not called the Justice League. It's the theme of the book is that they are actually taking the place of their I get it. Parents, I get of their it. parents. I get it. And much like Robin moved on to become Nightwing, 
He didn't just become Robin in a much more mature costume. I feel like that kind of messes up your uh, your your whole theory, though, because Robin should have changed his name and become Nightwing, and the Titans should change their name and say, "All right, we're going to be the Justice League." But whatever, <laughs> you know, right, well, they don't understand no. branding. It, I get it. So it, in my mind, they do, it doesn't. So whatever, it's my <laughs> time to talk. Uh, I can't wait for this, Matt. What's your pick for next week? My pick for next week is Avengers number one from Marvel. It's four ninety nine with art by CF Villa. Pardon me. It's written by Jed McKay with art by CF Villa and cover art by Stuart Imnonen. It's about goddamn time we get excited about the Avengers comics again. Here's your solicit: Jed McKay and Stormbreaker CF Villa take the reins of Earth's mightiest heroes, and you know. I'm not going to skip a book with a Stormbreaker on it. Come on. <laughs> the star, the icon, the witch, the construct, the god, the engineer, the king. The world is ever in peril. And a new team of Avengers mobilized to meet any dangers that dare threaten the planet. But when Terminus attacks, a new and insidious danger rears its head. One that the Avengers know all too well. And one that comes to them in the most dangerous of guises. That of a friend. My favorite thing about the solicitation and all the preview art that I've seen is everybody that's in the book is from the 616 Marvel U. There's no more like ultra ghost rider and super cosmic, you know, Dr. Doom with snake hands and like, (laughs) yeah, there's no star brand. (laughs) Yes. It just, thanks Jason Aaron. You're done. Let's get back to what the Avengers being the Avengers. Jed McKay has been kicking so much ass on the other books that he writes. If you, his Moon Knight is wonderful. His Doctor Strange is a blast. I'm really excited to see him get a huge book like this and have a good time with it. I'm excited to read the Avengers again. Me too. Fun fact, Terminus was the villain of Avengers 257, which was Nebula's first appearance. Hey, wow. Terminus it's getting full, around. Full circle, baby. The THN trade for next week is Blink. It's a trade paperback from Oni Press. It's $21.99. It's written by Christopher Sabella with art by Hayden Sherman and Nick Filardi. Here's your solicit. Ren Booker was three when she was found alone and covered in blood on the streets of New York. Just like me. Yep. (laughs) Since that tale is old as time. Since that day, she's been haunted by the childhood she can't remember until decades later. When she finds a cryptic website streaming multiple closed circuit television feeds from strange rooms in a ruined building, something clicks, setting off hidden memories that lead her back to a place she's seen in lifelong nightmares. Hunting for answers, Ren breaks in and finds herself lost in the camera filled dark mazes of a decayed social experiment known only as Blink, which she quickly discovers is not abandoned at all. But what should be a foreign nightmare scape feels all too familiar for Ren as she follows her obsession all the way down, piecing together the story of Blink, as well as her own ties to it. Eisner nominated Christopher Sabella. You know him from being a friend of this damn show. He also wrote Dirtbag Rapture. Hayden Sherman, who wrote Dark Spaces Wildfire. Also, uh, Above Snakes, right? That's what it was called. I think. So that was Hayden Sherman, right? He also drew the few. Hayden Sherman's great. He's done a bunch of stuff. And Nick Filardi, you know him from Rogue Planet. Team up for a found footage horror where uncovering your past will leave you trapped inside it. Wow. Woo. 
I did not uh, read Blink when it was released. This book collects the entire miniseries. I'm a big Sabella fan. The guy knows how to come up with a interesting concept that leans on familiar themes and then twists them in a very weird and sometimes scary way. Hayden Sherman, tremendous artist. This should be really good. He, uh, Sherman did do Above Snakes. He's great. Sabella, one of those guys that should always have from the twisted mind of Christopher Sabella, you know, like yeah, every time. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Love this dude. Be sure to add these comics to your pull list at your local comic shop if you want to read along with us and let us know what you thought of our picks. If you hated them, just write your name and address on a $20 bill, mail it to the ziggurat, and we'll give you the full cover price back. <laughs> Excelsior! Oh. That is it for TGen 703. Next time, we are back to reviewing new comics, and we're going to give you a little sneak peek taste of our Patreon Extra. In the meantime... Check out our Nerd News Update show. It's going to be hitting your feed on Mondays when there's news to talk about. Some weeks are just like, eh, not much time. Yeah, there's nothing to talk about. Right. Join us for the THN Cover to Cover Gang Hang on Saturdays at 11 o'clock Central Time. Check out our Discord for the details on that. Joe Patrick, tell them what else they can do at our exciting Discord server. Maybe you'd like to meet like-minded nerds from far-off exotic lands like Great Britain. Perhaps you didn't know that the Transformers wore armor that they could take off. Wait, Fake news. I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't cotton to that. No, sir. <laughs> or maybe you just want to discuss our question of the week. Look, you cannot tell me that Soundwave is wearing a helmet, and underneath that helmet, he has got a full face, including a mouth and eyeballs and a nose. Right. No. This is like when no. artists when artists want to put the Hulk in shoulder pads or something. Like, why? <laughs> like, what is he protecting? <laughs> this this week's question is courtesy of our friend John Literal. He wants you to call your shot. What do you think will or should be the last MCU movie? Maybe the genre dies. Maybe movies are replaced by hollow entertainment. Maybe the Marvel name fades into obscurity, and maybe they re- or maybe they reboot for the fourth or fifth time, and it just doesn't take. Or maybe the trademarks finally expire. Whatever. Just give us your best pitch for your final MCU movie. You can sign up for our Discord with the link at twoheadednerd.com slash Discord, where we've got channels for all of our segments, plus a bunch of other fun stuff that you can talk about with us. Or you can call the THN hotline at 402-819-4894 and leave a message there or send an mp3 to twoheadednerd at gmail.com and we'll put you on the dang show. If you're new to the show and you would rather Professor Axe telepaths the whole episode from your brain, I assure you, it's only because you haven't heard enough. The good news is you can hear the entire run of THN in our digital long box archive at twoheadednerd.com. THN is a listener-supported podcast. It would not be possible without the generosity of donors like our newest patron, Adriano Arganello. He sounds gorgeous, Joe. I don't even care how much money this gives me. Oh, yeah. I bet he's got a body like Fabio. <laughs> Absolutely. If you like what you hear every week, it is easy to be as good looking as Adriano and support this show. You could sign up to be a patron at patreon.com backslash two-headed nerd Adriano. We like you for your mind, too, not just your rippling muscles. 
I mean, I like that sweet caboose as well. Well, shit, it's not bad. For the record. Right. Have you seen that thing? God damn. <laughs> I mean, I'm only human. Before we go, our weekly shout out goes to our longtime pal and phenomenal artist, Jim Stafford. Jim and a group of honorary Autobots are putting the finishing touches on a 60 page Transformers fan comic that they are creating for a cause. The comic, Thunderclash Goes Bananas, is now available for pre order and all profits are going to Mary's Meals, a charity working to feed hungry children across the world. Word to you, Jim, and the rest of your team. You can find a link to purchase the comic digitally or in print in the show notes for this episode. Get out there, support a good cause, support your fellow listener. Good on you guys. Way to use your talents for good, not evil. Jim, I demand a t-shirt that just has the title of this comic book on it so people can go, what the f*** does that mean? <laughs> Love it. Until next time, true believers! Remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might just oversee your enjailment. This is the Two-Headed Nerd. Second.